0: Powerfully this morning. Amen. So, this Sunday, we are arriving at the end um, of our series on the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. I'm just going to give this to the computer here so I've got my clicker. Going to need that today. There we go. And the message title is Stay Awake. Stay Awake. How many of you? remember trying to do that as a child going to a sleepover maybe and you would try and stay up all night and that would be come on we're going to stay away we're going to go right through till morning and it'd always be brilliant for the first couple of hours you'd be like this is amazing we're up past midnight our parents don't even know be amazing you'd be on well back in my day You get the old N64 out, you play Goldeneye and it'd be like getting towards two o'clock in the morning. You'd be thinking, we are gangsters. 2 a.m. still on the N64, nobody knows. Smashing the sweeties, absolutely blazed on pound sweets. And then uh, by the time we get through to four, people would start dropping like flies, wouldn't they? And there'd be one or two dropping out. You're trying to be pushing through. And, uh, you know, once or twice in my childhood, I actually managed it to get all the way through. How many of you have ever tried that and done it, been successful, managed the whole night through, stayed awake, And then it would be like the parents would arrive to pick you up from your friend's house for church. <laughs> 8.30 a.m. and you'd just be like, absolutely Larry, kind of coming out you know squinty-eyed not really knowing what day it is or what your name is and they take you to church and then it would be kind of trying to stay awake again through the sermon so my command to you today is stay awake i've got my eyes on you for the next 30 40 minutes We'll be watching, okay, for any bleary eyes out there. So this Sunday we're arriving at the end of our study of the Olivet Discourse and the title is Stay Awake. That is the command that Christ gives to us at the end of the passage that Darren just read for us. Stay awake. Jed's gone already. Wake up, Jed. So this Sunday we're arriving at the end of this passage, which is, of course, a, a prophetic warning. It's a prophetic warning which Jesus delivered to four of his closest friends, Four of his closest friends. How many of you have got friends? You know, I'd love to do a whole series on friendship. A friend of mine just wrote a book actually, Phil Knox, uh, wrote a book on, on friendship that I'd highly recommend because I think friendship is one of the most understudied and undervalued messages of all of Scripture. The importance of having mates. And so I, 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 would, I just want to preach on this now, but Jesus took four of the disciples. He had a close circle of friends. Jesus had mates. Did you know that? And they invested in one another's lives. And he took these four friends aside and he told them the things that were to come, the things that were about to happen in Jerusalem, the things that were going to happen to the temple, and even things about the very end of time he spoke to them about. He confided in them. I want to encourage you, invest in friendships. Seek out friends that you can confide in that is biblical it's healthy it's good and I honestly I think because of culture many of us we just don't have time do we to invest in friendship we've got work we've got hobbies we've got pastimes. we're we're married we've got kids it could be so hard but I would just say please think about friendships think about investing in friendships think about whether you could do that could you pull aside four friends do you have four mates It's something to think about and pray about, isn't it? Friendship's important, I think. Anyway, I digress. So Jesus takes his friends. He speaks to them, of course, about things that are going to come. It's a prophetic passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's speaking of things to come. And he prophesies, doesn't he, accurately about, firstly, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he speaks about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And he uses very prophetic language to describe that, the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the age. And we'll see today how there are many elements of Mark 13, many things that Jesus talks about that indeed have happened already. And indeed there are some things that he says that are still future for us even today. This passage as well splits nicely down into two parts. So the first part is the lesson of the fig tree, verses 28 to 31, where Jesus tells a short parable or lesson about a fig tree. He says, listen, when you see the fig tree putting forth its leaves, you know summer's near. And so also when you see all these things, say all these things. All these. we're still awake. Come on. We're staying awake for the next 30 minutes. When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. So this is the first passage, the first section of today's passage, verses 28 to 31, the lesson of the fig tree. The second part is verses 32 to 37, and that has another short parable in it about a master, a a property owner who goes away, takes a trip away and leaves his servants in charge. It's quite similar in some ways to the parable he told earlier the parable of the wicked tenants. Do you remember that? Where there's the landowner, he goes away. But the object of this parable is different. This is talking about a landowner who goes away and leaves his servants in charge. But we don't hear that these are wicked servants. We simply hear that these servants have been left in charge and that their master's going to return at a time that they do not know. And therefore, they must stay awake. They don't want to be found asleep and unprepared when he comes. Part one, is concerned with the timing of when all these things are going to take place and part two is concerned with dealing about that day and that hour. That day and that hour. So all these things in the first part relate to everything that Jesus has said before. The destruction of the temple that not one stone will be left on top of another and of course the abomination of desolation And the coming of the Son of Man in judgment on Jerusalem. That's what all these things correlate to. But I believe that that day or that hour speaks really more closely about the final day of time. The final day of history when Christ returns in judgment. And so I think there's a neat division between the two. The first part of today's passage deals with what has gone before, the things that were fulfilled in the generation that Christ was part of in AD 70, the second part of this passage I think is applicable to the very end of time and I believe that the parallel passage in Matthew bears this out. If you want to look at the parallel passages, uh, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes stories are repeated in more than one gospel, aren't they? We have four accounts of the Gospel narratives Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and sometimes if a story or a teaching or a parable appears in one it appears in two or three others and it's good to check and cross-reference. So in Matthew 24 we get the same story and in Luke 21 we've got the same account and Matthew 24 is interesting because it gives us a slightly wider lens Slightly more information in Matthew 24 than is in Mark 13. So I'm going to read the parallel passage from Matthew. See what you make of this. Matthew 24:36 to 51. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, He will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds to me like the very end of time this sounds to me like the book of Revelation and the things that we read therein and Jesus says interestingly in Matthew that these final days these last days of human history will be like the days of Noah those days which are future for us will be like certain days that have already passed I think many times because of all the advances that we experience in modern life, all of the technological advances that we become so familiar with, we forget that in essence nothing has changed in terms of the condition of mankind. Mankind is still as sinful now as mankind was in the days of Noah. Just because we are more advanced technologically, we've got better health care, we still have indwelling sin and therefore the problems and conditions of man are exactly the same now as they were in the days of Noah. So in what sense did Jesus mean that those final days would be like the days of Noah? I think it's in the sense that people will think that the idea of Jesus Christ returning on the clouds in judgment will be highly improbable, maybe even laughable. They won't give it a moment's thought because the idea of some great global cataclysmic event happening just doesn't seem possible. It's the furthest thing from their minds. They can't conceive of it. And they're absolutely consumed with the habits and daily pursuits of their little lives. They've got no time to give energy to thinking about wild speculations in some ancient book called the Bible. It's laughable to them. It's an old wives' tale. It's just a religious story that was given to people to control them. Isn't that just a picture of our times today? Isn't that so accurate? Just as it was in the time of Noah. You imagine Noah building that ark with his family you imagine him going out and beginning to warn people about the coming flood and they would have laughed at him what are you talking about what do you mean a global flood they could not conceive of it they never gave it serious thought we know that because none of them entered the ark nobody beside Noah and his family entered the ark though Noah warned them people didn't believe. And as implausible as that global flood would have sounded to those on earth in Noah's day, it actually happened. It actually happened. There was a global flood. All humanity, bar Noah and his family, were wiped off the face of the planet. And the only ones who survived it, the only ones who went on to live, were those who were in the ark. And as implausible as the events here described in Mark 13, the return of Christ, His coming in judgment upon the earth, as implausible and improbable as those events seem as we sit here in an air-conditioned building, in a car park full of high-spec vehicles, with iPhones in our pockets, as improbable as the events in the book of Revelation sound to us, they will happen. They will come to pass. And only those who are in Christ will survive them. Just as the only ones who survived the flood were in the ark, there is only one way to survive Christ's final return, and that is to be in faith. That is to trust in Him. That is to believe upon Him. And I want to question you today, is that where you are? If Christ were to return this afternoon, are you sure that you would be saved that's why we're to stay awake that's why we're commanded to be awake not to be asleep but to be awake not literally don't worry we're not being asked to put matchsticks in our eyelids and to try and eat as many sweets consistently to stay awake as we possibly can but we're asked and commanded to be awake spiritually to be spiritually awake How do we stay awake? What does Jesus mean when he commands this? Well I think what, what is interesting is that he mentions four particular watches of the night. In verse 35, if you've got your Bible open, Jesus says, therefore stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. I didn't realize this, but those are the four watches of the night. According to the Romans, the Jews had three watches of the night, but the Romans had four. And Jesus literally mentions the four watches of the night. And he says that any point during those four watches, the master could return. So Christ is talking here about being a watchman. Being a watchman, somebody who is tasked with the job of standing upon the city walls and watching, being vigilant. So how are you commanded to be awake? What does it mean for you as a Christian here today to obey the command of Christ to stay awake? Well, it it means three things. You are to be a watchman. Number one, you've got to be awake. If you were a watchman and you were kipping and having a little nap, you were failing at your job. So you had to be vigilant awake. Secondly, the watchman needed to be vigilant. It was no good just being conscious. It was no good simply having his eyes open. He had to be vigilant. He had to keep watch. He had to actively look at the horizon and see who was coming over it. Were they friend or were they foe? Thirdly, the watchman was responsible to raise an alarm if he saw enemies coming. He was responsible To raise his alarm, to shout, to say, there's enemies at the gate, they're coming. Wake up, stir yourself, be ready. That was what the watchman was commanded to do, to be awake, to be vigilant, and to raise the alarm. So those are the first things that you are commanded to do in the spiritual realm, is to be awake, not to be asleep. Secondly, to be vigilant, to be on guard. Thirdly, to raise the alarm for the coming of the Son of Man to warn. And Jesus is not just commanding his apostles to be watchmen, he's commanding all to be watchmen. All of you. No matter how old, no matter how young, no matter how long you've been in Christ, no matter how short time you've been a Christian, you are commanded by Christ to be a watchman. So what does it mean to be awake? That was the first thing I mentioned in the spirit. Well, it simply means, it's pretty simple, it just means having your eyes open to the truth. That's always a picture of what it means to be awake. Those who walk in darkness in the book of Ephesians are who? That's who we were before we were in Christ. We were blinded to the truth of God's Word. To be awake is to have your eyes open to God's truth. Not to be blinded by unbelief. Not to be blinded by unbelief or not to be sleeping in the cares of this world. To have our eyes open. Drinking in God's truth with our eyes. To be vigilant, secondly, to remain vigilant, we have to be prepared. It's not, just, it's not just that we should be awake to God's truth. It's not just that we should have our eyes open and not be slumbering in the cares of life. But we've got to be vigilant. We actually have to be ready. So a watchman, for example, had to have the correct gear. He had to be dressed properly properly. Uh, had to have his, he had to have shoes on his feet, he knows he was being barefoot, had to be ready. It's the same with your Christian life. You need to be prepared for his coming. If I told you that Jesus, if I'd got word somehow, Jesus is coming back next Monday afternoon, would your life change at all? What would you do differently? If you knew Jesus was coming back next Monday, Would there be things in your life that you might change well what you'd be doing in the week between now and Christ's return is that you would be preparing yourself you would be becoming ready you would be being vigilant on guard and that's what Jesus is commanding you to do even now to be in that place of preparedness you know if Christ came back in an hour Would you be ready? That's what I'm talking about. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be vigilant. And thirdly, you're commanded to be a watchman in that you warn others of Christ's soon coming. You warn others. You raise the alarm. Now, the biblical paradigm, the biblical picture of what it means to warn others isn't simply that we walk around with a placard saying repent or perish. It's that we are communicating we are communicating in a way that others can understand us. Okay, let me read for Ezekiel 33, 2-6. to Son of man, speak to your people. See, it's communication. It's communication. Speak to your people. Say to them, when I bring the sword against the land, and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. What's the application? What could that possibly mean for you and I today? Well, it means simply that we have knowledge of the coming of Jesus Christ, not in the same way that He came Back in AD, well, BC 7 or whatever they say it was. Not in that manner, coming as a child, as a baby in a manger. But we know when he comes back, he's going to be coming in a very different manner. He's going to be coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's coming to stand all humanity before himself. And all humanity will give an account for the things that they've done in this life. It's very, very serious. And what we are commanded to do is to warn, is to sound the alarm, to raise a trumpet blast and say, Christ is coming back. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Raise the alarm. For Ezekiel, if he failed to do that and the sword fell upon His fellow Israelites and they were slain though they were slain because of their own sins God held Ezekiel accountable or would have held Ezekiel accountable had he not warned them and so it's very important that we are sharing the gospel today with unbelievers it's very important that in any way possible we are acting as a watchman and warning those around us of the coming of Christ you know, it was a very important part of the early church's gospel, was the returning of Christ in judgment. Read Acts 17: God has appointed one man to judge the whole world. It was part of the gospel that was proclaimed in the early church. And I think today maybe we've softened it up a little bit. We've made it a bit more palatable, because we don't want to upset people. so the gospel today goes something like, "Listen, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, man. He wants to heal your body. He wants to make you wealthy going to pray for you and that's true Jesus loves them Jesus loves them but listen that's not the whole gospel is it it's not the whole gospel because there'll be many people on that day who got healed there'll be many people on that day that maybe had heard that message that Jesus loved them but never repented never put their faith in Christ never came to God in faith never came to God needing forgiveness and they'll go to hell So we must preach the full gospel. We must preach the return of Christ. We must preach Him as judge. We must preach Him as Lord. Huh? It's a funny one, isn't it? As a famous preacher who always says this. He finds it funny when people say, well, I made Jesus my Lord. And he said, you didn't make Jesus your Lord. He already was the Lord. You just acknowledged it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. You don't make him king. You don't make him Lord. You just acknowledge that it's true. So we must warn. We must sound the alarm. However we do that, it has to be understood by our people around us though, doesn't it? That's why I said about the placard because I have no issue. I I preach on the streets. I don't have an issue with street preaching. What I have a problem with is an abrasive form of communication that has more to do with bravado and aggression than it does to do with actually communicating a message. I'm not wanting to bash on street preachers. I love street preachers. I am one. What I'm saying is that the mode of communication, the way that we raise the alarm has to be in a way that the people we're trying to communicate actually listen and understand. Does that make sense? So you communicate the message but you do it in a way that you're fellow human can understand it. Don't screech at them. You don't need to yell at them, you know, but do communicate. Whether it's a Facebook message or a, I don't know, whatever social media you use, that's acceptable. Whether it's a conversation over a cup of tea, that's raising the alarm, that's sounding the trumpet. However you do it, do it. That's all we're saying. That's how we become a watchman. There's two errors that I think we are very often guilty of in the church in the West today. And they're opposed to one another because we're like pendulums very often, aren't we? We swing from one thing to the other and maybe I'm, it's just me that's like that but in my life I have to constantly correct the pendulum swing in my life from one side to the other, one extreme to the other. On one extreme, many Christians fall into complacency about this message of Christ's return. They fall into complacency because so much time has passed. Two thousand years have passed. Since Christ made this prophecy on the Mount of Olives, he's not coming back in my lifetime. What are the chances? So we fall into complacency. We don't think about these things. They're far from our mind. But 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Do you hear this? Do not overlook this fact. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The second extreme is that, on the other hand, many have become hypervigilant. Hypervigilant. How many of you understand what hypervigilance is in a psychological sense? I've struggled from hypervigilance before. It's where your body thinks it's in a constant state of threat. You constantly think you're under threat. You're hyperanxious. You're not healthy. You're actually not in a very prepared state of mind because your body is like acting as though it's under threat right now. And many Christians have got hypervigilance in the West when it comes to the end times. It's all they think about. They're constantly looking out for extra signs. There's a blood moon tonight. You know, um, there's a war going on in Russia right now. Well, let's just see how all the dots connect. And they've got a big wall full of dot connectors about end time prophecies and current events. And that's hypervigilance. That's the other extreme. And what happens when you're in hypervigilance is... You're actually in a state of delusion. You're convinced that certain things are going to happen to your body. And it's the same when we get hypervigilant about the end times. We can end up being in delusion. I don't know how many false prophecies from very good people I've heard in the last three years about end time stuff. With, with the coming of the, the pandemic, everybody started saying, look, it's here in the Bible. Look, there it is when Russia invaded Ukraine. Look, it's, it's this, it's this, it's this. And they've all been wrong. So we also have to be careful that we are not getting hyper-vigilant about the end times either. But we must be awake. It's no use ignoring them. It's no use pretending it's not going to happen because it will. But what is also important is to hear the words of our Lord when He says that concerning that day and hour, when it will actually happen, no one knows. No one knows. No one knows when it will be. Jesus doesn't say, no one knows now, but they will later. He says, nobody knows, full stop. And as soon as people begin to speculate about certain dates, when they think the rapture is going to happen, or when they think Christ is going to return, they're actually in complete denial of what Jesus says. Plainly, no one knows. And the history books paint a pretty bad picture, to be honest, of those who have attempted to tell us what day Christ will return. Perhaps number one on the list of failed prophecies concerning the end times, the award must go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, to the Watchtower Society. The leaders of the Jehovah's Witnesses have made multiple predictions of Christ's return date. Let me run through a few. 1878, 1881, 1914, 1980, 1925, and latterly 1975. Guess what? They only apologise for one of those. The rest... They gaslit everybody and reinterpreted what they'd said and pretended they never actually predicted the end of the world, but they very clearly did. And also, the late Harold Camping I don't know if anybody's heard of the American evangelist Harold Camping but he predicted that Judgment Day would occur on September 6th, 1994. When that didn't happen, instead of apologizing, I got it wrong, Harold simply shifted the date. To September 29th, and then when that didn't happen, he pushed it out to October 2nd. When that didn't turn out to be true, did he go home? No, 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 no. He went on and predicted that the rapture was going to occur instead on May 21st, 2011, followed by five months of plagues on the earth, eventually culminating in the destruction of the whole world on October 21st, 2011. Well, we're still here today, aren't we? Sadly, Many people actually believed Harold Camping. Some even sold their houses and donated all the money to his ministry. Did he give the money back when the prophecy failed? Did he? Heck, he kept the money. And it's very sad to me, to be honest, to see that kind of thing happening in the Christian world. Brothers and sisters, do we need discernment today? Do we need discernment? Ever we do. We need to be discerning. And of course, sadly a sadly, story of one girl who actually took her life after she was so disappointed that his prophecy didn't come about. Very, very sad. There's a quote here from Augustine that I just love. A person does not go wrong when he knows that he does not know something, but only when he thinks he knows something which he does not know. Very astute. Sadly, even some faithful ministers have made predictions that have turned out to be wrong. Chuck Smith Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, loved Calvary Chapel, and um, you know the Jesus People movement in the 70s, wonderful move of God. But even Pastor Chuck made a failed prediction of the Rapture. He predicted it would happen around 1981, and that was because he believed that the budding of the fig tree that's mentioned in verse 28. He believed that that spoke of the reinstitution of the nation of Israel. He saw the fig tree as the rebudding of the nation of Israel, which of course happened in 1948. The nation of Israel was, um, was brought into existence in, in 1948 again. And of course, Pastor Chuck Smith saw that then as the generation that would see this as being 40 years from 1948 and said, well, therefore, the rapture is going to happen in or around 1981. Of course, again, uh, he was wrong and Calvary Chapel took some of those books out of print where he made those predictions. Uh, If you want to read more about that or watch more, you can watch uh, Mike Winger's video on the same passage. Very interesting. Now, I want to say that there are many that see the fig tree and the budding of the fig tree in verse 28 as speaking about the nation of Israel. And certainly, the fig tree is represented as the temple and Jerusalem in Mark 11. Remember the Story of the fig tree where Jesus curses the fig tree. And it's a prophetic picture of what's going to happen to the temple. But fig trees in general in Scripture, can they can, they can represent any number of things. Any number of things. In fact, in Matthew's account of this very story, Jesus says the fig tree and all other trees. So the fig tree is not necessarily specific to this story. I don't believe it has to mean Israel. I think essentially, if we look at the closest other text in the Bible about fig trees, the closest other reference to a fig tree is actually in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 2, verse 13, it says, the fig tree ripens its figs, the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And in that passage, it's about the fullness of time. It's about the moment coming, the moment arriving when The lovers must go away together. And Jesus' mention of the fig tree here in verse 28, I don't believe is talking about the nation of Israel. I think it's just simply to say, when you see the signs that I've mentioned coming about, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see signs in the heavens, know that these things I've mentioned are about to come to pass. And I believe the things that he mentions, the destruction of Jerusalem... The destruction of the temple, the end of the Jewish age, happened all in AD 70. Jesus was correct in saying that that generation would witness all of the things he'd mentioned. The Son of Man did come in judgment upon the Jewish nation because they rejected him as Messiah. His judgment was complete in that sense there. However, this aspect that we're looking at in the story about the man who goes away and leaves a servant in charge, to me that seems to speak further off. That day and that hour speaks to me at the very end of time. Of course, Jesus says in the end of this passage that no one will know, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, nor the Son. This is something that has given people pause for thought throughout the ages and often enemies of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity will quote Mark thirteen thirty two as evidence of their denial of the divinity of Christ. See, how can Christ be God? He doesn't even know the day of his own coming. Doesn't God know all things? Well, yes, of course God knows all things. Well, look here. Jesus doesn't know this one thing, so he's not God. How many of you have heard that one before? You ever spoken to a Muslim or a JW? You've likely heard that argument before. But before we look at what they claim this verse proves, let's look at what else this text proves. Let's look at what else it tells us. Who's Jesus claiming to be? Nor does the Son. The Son. Jesus doesn't call himself the Son of Man here, but the Son of God the Father. So this is actually a proof text for Jesus being the Son of God, something that Muslims don't like to admit when they debate this passage with us. But if it proves anything, it proves Jesus identified as being the Son of God, something that the Quran explicitly denies. Moreover, when we take into account all that the Bible teaches about Jesus, not just this verse, but everything, we see that the Bible teaches that Jesus had a divine nature Jesus was God and when people say well show me one verse where Jesus says worship me bow down and worship me John 20 28 I can show you multiple verses where people bowed down and worshiped Jesus and Jesus did not tell them to stop now if you're not God and somebody falls at your feet and worships you you've got to tell them to stop right in fact it's a sin not to It's exactly what the apostles did, isn't it? When people worshipped them on the Isle of Malta, they said, stop. We are not gods. Now if Jesus allowed people to worship him as God and never stopped them, what does that make Jesus a sinner? But we know Jesus was no sinner. Even the Muslims would admit that. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses will admit that. Jesus accepted worship from his own disciples, John 20, 20. My Lord and my God. Simple as that. The Athanasian Creed says we believe and confess that Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God completely human with a rational soul and human flesh equal to the father as regards divinity less than the father as regards humanity what does this say it just tells us this that God the son Jesus Christ chose to limit himself or limit certain attributes of his divinity by taking on human flesh he voluntarily limited some of his attributes by taking on human flesh. He didn't stop being God. He didn't lay aside his divinity, but Philippians says he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. So we know, for example, Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience How did he learn obedience? Because God can't learn anything, right? He has all knowledge. He learned obedience according to his human nature. We also know from Scripture in Luke that Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature and favor with God and man. But how? According to his human nature. Jesus, as a human, still had to be potty trained. He didn't come out knowing how to do all those things according to his human nature. He learned to do them, and it's proper to say that he did. Gregory of Nazianzus, I think you say it, one of the church fathers, said, We are to understand the ignorance of Christ in this case by attributing it to his human nature, not to the Godhead. So it's relatively simple to answer the case of the Jehovah's Witness or the Muslim simply by referencing scripture, simply by looking to the doctrine of the Trinity, which is telling us that Christ is both man and God. Finally, one of the proof in this verse of Jesus' divinity, what does he say to them? He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What person, what man tells you that their words will not pass away? Only God's words can stand when all else fails. Many have made proud predictions, of course, of the demise of Jesus' words. Many have made predictions of the end of christianity in fact the atheist philosopher thomas paine he wrote a book called the age of reason in the late 1700s and he said that within 50 years of his publication the age of reason the bible would be out of print and that was in the 1790s and here we are today the bible still the best-selling book worldwide so i'll finish with saying this don't build your life on things that pass away don't build your life around things here in this life, on the earth, whether they are people, whether it's family, friends, or wealth, or fame, or success, all of these things will pass away, brothers and sisters. Everybody goes to the grave. That's the one certainty in this life. Don't build your life about, around things that will pass. Build your life upon the Word of God. Build your life upon Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, to finish with. I'll invite the worship team to come, please. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's stand if we're able.